I invite you to remain standing for the scripture today, which comes to us out of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, the words of Paul. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at least you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any in all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as scripture is read and the word is proclaimed, help us hear with joy and a desire to serve what you say to us this day in your name. Amen. Just a reminder that we continue our Lenten worship series this week entitled, What Makes a Hero? The Death-Defying Ministry of Jesus Christ. It's a sermon series based on the study written by Reverend Matt Rawl. And we have been going through... Uh, looking at, uh, through the lens of Jesus, um, some of the different characteristics and dynamics that play into pop culture heroes and what we see versus how Jesus lived it out and spoke that we are called to live it out as well. Anybody like reality TV shows? Nobody? Like reality TV shows? You know, where they film things that, that happen in, 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 in real life, and they record it, um, and you can't tell me it's not scripted. But anyway, so it happens in real life, is why they call it reality TV. I watched a show um, that I got hooked on a few years ago on Bravo TV called Million Dollar Listing. Anybody else ever watch a show called Million Dollar Listing? And they follow agents in Los Angeles, they follow real estate agents in New York, and, and they're luxury, high-end real estate agents, and, and the, they, they go through their deals, and of course the drama of getting to those deals, and they follow these guys around, and they're real agents, because I looked them up, of course, you know, some of the drama has to be scripted, but anyway, still good entertainment, but in this show, there, there's one overarching theme that permeates, and that is the more these agents sell, the more and the harder that they work, the more money that they earn, the more they want. The more they want the next deal to be bigger and better. When the agents argue with one another, it's always about who's got the better listings. Whose clients have the most money? Who is about to get the next big deal? And the clients are even worse. The wealthier they are, the pickier they are with their houses. And everything in the show is about more and more and more. You know, and unfortunately, this attitude of more, more, more exemplifies a huge chunk of humanity. 
the more we have, the more we want. And this isn't just about money or wealth. This has to do with fame. This has to do with status. It has to do with power. The more we have, the more we want. And the more that we have, the more we want, the more we separate ourselves into groups that either have or are striving for the same thing are those who don't have the ability to do so. We create two distinctive and divisive groups. The haves and the have-nots. The haves are those who have it all. Or they think they have it all. Or at least it is perceived that they have it all. And the have-nots, well... Everybody else at the other end of the spectrum, the ones who don't. Some, some people have experienced both sides of the have versus have not cycle. The NFL draft is coming up soon, and it's usually about this time every year that we start to hear the stories about those players who have come from nothing, created, uh, worked hard, I mean worked really hard, and were able to get into college, and not only did they thrive in college, but they are about to be staring down some big contracts in the NFL draft. And we hear these stories about these rags-to-riches tales, and, and, and we can all buy into a, a rags-to-riches tale, right? I mean, this is, these are the kinds of stories we like to hear. These are the kind of success stories that, that really empower the next generation of, of youth and players to do their best, to strive for their goals, that anything can be done. We can move from the have-nots into the haves in the eyes of society. They did a, a, a poll uh, or a survey not long ago, and, and, and the first purchase on average that football players who had nothing, who immediately have a lot of money from their contracts, the first purchase that these guys make with their new contracts. Anybody guess? A home for their parents. On average, the first purchase they make is a new home for their parents. Work hard, Allison. <laughs> We love these stories. You know, the, there, there's a term that we use for these uh, folks who go from uh, with little to no opportunity in the perception of humanity to the ones who, who make it big and have it all. We call them the underdogs. I love a good underdog story. It's proof that anything can happen in this world, that anybody can put their minds to things and can achieve it no matter where they come from. One of my favorite movies all time is the movie entitled The Pursuit of Happiness. Are you familiar with The Pursuit of Happiness? It's a story about a man named Chris Gardner who invests his entire life savings in a business venture selling um, medical diagnostic equipment. And although he works as hard as he can, and he, he sells a little bit here and there, he can't sell enough to sustain his family. And they end up... Um, going into poverty, he loses his home, his wife leaves him and his five-year-old son, and they end up on the streets. 
It was a movie that came out not long ago about, I think not long ago, it's probably been over 10 years now, but the movie uh, played, uh, had Will Smith, who played Chris Gardner, and his son, Jaden Smith, made his TV debut as the five-year-old son. So if you haven't watched the movie, I highly recommend it. But he ends up homeless with his five-year-old son. He is a hard-working have-not. And one day he walks into, uh, he runs into a business manager who is very impressed by his intelligence and invites him to apply for an unpaid internship at a stock brokerage firm that would eventually could turn in into a full-time broker's job. And although he was already broke, he had nothing to lose, so he applied for the internship, living in shelters with his son, worked as hard as he can, and he eventually secured the job. Today, Chris Gardner is a multimillionaire who inspires underdogs around the world. He is now using his have to be a motivational speaker, encouraging the have-nots to never give We find these stories everywhere. We even find these stories throughout Scripture. A prime example of an underdog story is David versus Goliath. It turns out to be a pretty good ending. Unless you're Goliath. But we find these stories even in Scripture. The division between haves and have-nots while obvious in some cases, such as the million-dollar listing example, can also be not so obvious, as we often unintentionally create these divisions ourselves by the choice of language we use when communicating with others. This ties in a little bit to last week's message. But I want you to hear it again from this perspective. We really ought to be careful about saying, quote, unquote, churchy things to others, especially those who are on the have-not side of the understanding of spirituality. Let me give you an example. I want you to stay with me today, okay? Remember, some of you I've told, I said, my job every Sunday is to ruffle your feathers, just not step on them. So ruffle we will do today, but then we'll bring it back around. Can we do that? Is that okay? Say amen. amen. So here we go. One example of this that I'm speaking of today is that I feel is an example one of the things that we say to families when they're going through times of grief that I feel like we should not say is anything that alludes to putting the death of the loved one on God's shoulders. I think we make a mistake when we put the death on God. And let me give you some examples of some of the statements that do that Things such as, it was his time. It was her time. Statements such as, God was calling her home. It was God's will. Or, there was a reason. 
We have all used these. I'm guilty. We've all used these, but I feel like we are using these in a way that they were not meant to be used. And all of these open the opportunity for the bereaved to blame God for the death of their loved one. It opens the opportunity to blame God, whereas we are wanting them to look towards God. Does that make sense? Sometimes by our language, we create barriers that don't enable us to point people to the way that we're called to point them. We are called to point folks in their best of times and in their worst of times. We are called to point people to God. And sometimes without knowing it, we unintentionally do the opposite. The way we communicate with people, with people can create the very division we are trying to avoid. Another example is when someone asks how you're doing. I used to respond with, well, I'm blessed. Have you ever done that? Someone asks how you're doing, well, I'm blessed today. And one day, I had that thrown back in my face by someone who did not feel blessed. While I feel that it's true that I am blessed and that I can communicate that, what about the family that doesn't feel blessed? Really where I got in trouble using this was where after we had our second daughter, Kara, who uh, someone was out, we were, I was out and about somewhere and someone asked how she was doing and how you, I said, well, I said, we feel so blessed to have two healthy children and they said well it must be nice then because we can't have children and that's when I had to take a step back and say whoa my words just threw this person off to God my words just turned this person off to the gospel I changed from saying I'm blessed to using the language I'm thankful. I'm thankful. While I do believe I'm blessed, sometimes the language we use unintentionally creates the division we're trying to avoid. Changing our language from blessing to thankfulness is one of the ways we can dissolve this divide between the us between the haves and those who perceive that they are not blessed, the have nots. And not just in this example, but in everything that we claim that God has blessed us with, using the language of thanksgiving instead helps us better understand how God is working in the entire world. As a pastor, I learned that people like to give you things. Praise God. I love to receive things. 
especially food. So thankful for the gifts. I'm sure you can see it all over me. (laughs) And I used to say things like, oh, I can't accept that. But when you got a big mouth like me, at some point in time, things are going to get thrown back into your face more than once. Right, Roy? One day I said that to somebody. I can't accept this. And, And again, it got thrown back into my face. And he said, you can take this because it is my blessing to give this to you. Don't take this blessing away from me. I was speechless. Can you believe that? (laughs) Don't take the blessing of giving away from me. Ever since then, I learned to simply say, thank you. God bless you. And God bless this gift. In any given situation, we are either a candidate for a miracle or a channel through which a miracle happens. In other words, blessings take on many forms. It is a blessing to give. It is a blessing to receive. Giving thanks for God's grace that brings the two together helps us to see an even deeper meaning into Paul's words in the scripture we have today out of Philippians. Paul is also talking about being on both sides of the have versus have not division. He once had it all. He was a wealthy man in Tarsus. He had money. He had education, which was very valuable in the first century. And he went from someone who had it all, not to mention he had power. He was in charge of charging Christians, or excuse me, followers of Jesus of Nazareth. He was the one sent out by the high priest to be in charge of bringing these Christ followers to justice. So he had it all. And then he had nothing. (laughs) Then comes a verse in our scripture that is a favorite verse of so many people. It is the second most quoted scripture in the history of the Bible. You know what the first one is? John (laughs) 3.16. It's hard to beat that one. (laughs) This Philippians 4.13 is the second most quoted scripture in all of history. Let's say it together. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a voice of encouragement. This is a verse of hope. Paul is writing to the people in Philippi, taking them, uh, thanking them for all that they have done for his mission. They've given money, they provided places to stay, they provided meals, they provided spaces for worship. He is thanking them for all they've done for this mission. But one thing sticks out to me in this verse, and perhaps it has to you in the past too, you just never took the time to ask it. The question I have about Philippians 4.13 is, what does he mean by all things? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever thought about it? What is all things? For some, all things means fulfilling a dream. For some, it, 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 it may mean climbing a mountain that life throws out at us. 
For others, it might simply mean getting through this season and moving on to the next. The bottom line is, no matter what all things means to you, no matter what this life may throw at us, that we can go through it and we can do so choosing to stay connected to Christ. No matter what our all things is, we have one task. Stay connected to Christ. Paul can endure all things because through this connection, he knows what really matters in life. Paul can endure being in need. Paul can endure having plenty. He can endure the bad times. He can endure the good times. He has learned the secret to being content in every circumstance. Living a life in Christ doesn't mean that we are now good at everything. Rather, it means we begin to truly discover what God is calling us to do. I can do all things. It doesn't mean that if we pray hard enough, we can, we can fly or shoot laser beams out of our eyes or leap tall buildings in a single bound. It means we can do what God is calling us to do. We can do it no matter how difficult the task, no matter how long it may take, no matter how much fun we are or are not having while doing it. It means that we no longer see ourselves as, uh, or others as those who have or those who don't have, but we see everyone as beloved children of God. And it means that we can do what God is calling us to do. That's what I can do all things mean. Sometimes it appears that some are blessed and some are not. But in God's kingdom, our thankfulness for what Christ is doing reveals that we are all blessed when we invite Christ to be at the center of our lives. God is calling us to share our very self with one another and with the world. One of my favorite superheroes in the Marvel series is Iron Man. Iron Man puts on this amazing suit that he built from his vast resources to go fight for the little guy. It's a suit built on the side of the have for the have-nots. And while God does the same thing, God did it just a little bit differently. Instead of putting on an amazing suit, Jesus emptied himself and put on humanity. Jesus was fully divine in majesty and in glory, but also fully human, meaning it was a glory that experienced suffer and hunger, pain, and ultimately death. Jesus was born literally in the lowest of places on earth to reveal that God's glory knows no bounds. All things does not come with an asterisk. Someone say amen. amen. God can do all things. 
and Jesus haves and have-nots come together to reveal a kingdom of abundant and everlasting love. There is have. There are have-nots. And then there's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God we can define very simply. Anything, any place that is of God. You are the kingdom of God because God dwells in you as God's beloved children. The have-nots can be the kingdom of God because guess what? God dwells even in the have-nots. They are part of God's kingdom. We are one body, part of the greatest kingdom that this world will ever know. The difference between haves and have-nots was buried under the weight of that cross. And you want to know what happened after the burial? You know what happened. Jesus conquered everything. And Jesus did it for all people. This is the gospel message, folks. Suddenly, the have and the have-not division goes away because when we look into each other's eyes, all we can see is the face of Christ looking back at us. That's what we're called to see. When Jesus looked into the eyes of the tax collector, the prostitute, the poor, the leper, the hungry, Jesus didn't see a have-not. Jesus saw a beloved child. What do we see when we look into the eyes of the have-nots? What do we see when we look into the eyes of the haves? Do we see people who think they have it all? Do we see people who don't work hard enough, who aren't doing the most they can with their lives? The list could go on. Or do we see Christ? The all things Paul is referring to here begins with us and the vision that we see as God's kingdom. We are all part of it. Every person outside of those doors are part of the kingdom of God. How are we building a kingdom together that is comprised of all people? How are we doing it in a way that doesn't create division but inspires unity? What is your all things? What are our, as a church, all things? And how can we carry those out for the sake of God's children? This is the gospel message. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.